Amen. He's worthy. Kids, up through fifth grade, you are dismissed. You can go ahead and go uh, follow Rama to your class. For the rest of you, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. We are starting out in James this morning. If you were here with us at all for our first Peter study, that should be well-worn in your Bibles, or you should at least know how to tap there on your phone, and uh, it's just going to be one book back from that. So it's right in between Hebrews and First Peter uh, toward the end of your New Testament. And I'm very excited. I'm always excited. I mean, it's just a good thing when we get to study God's Word together. And it is doubly exciting for me when we get to begin a new book of the Bible. So I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We're going to spend the next 12 or 13 weeks or so in James together. But before we start with James, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Jerry for preaching last week on the topic of marriage and uh, just the importance of intentionality in that. And then in introducing uh, the new Grace uh, Marriage Ministry that we'll be starting here in November. We saw uh, on the the video as you walked in uh, talking about that. So I just wanted to give a little bit more practical information if you weren't with us last week or just as a reminder uh, of what that's going to look like. So the format for this is that uh, one Saturday of each quarter, so it's just... It's only four times a year, and that's one thing I love about it. It's not, you're not signing up to commit to like a weekly Bible study or anything. It's just kind of four times a year, a check-in on your marriage to see uh, how things are doing and to bring some intentionality to that relationship. So four times a year, you're going to commit to spending, it's four to six hours on a Saturday uh, during a workshop. Uh, we'll serve you lunch and snacks and all sorts of good things uh, to keep you happy while you're there and... Um, it's going to be the format of it. Pastor Jerry bought all these kind of bunch of like four-foot tables, and so it's going to be you and your spouse sitting at that table, and the facilitator is going to lead you, and then you kind of are going to be talking mostly just with your spouse about those things in your marriage. So you'll, you will have a little bit of a chance to get to know the other people who are doing it with you, but primarily you're going to be spending that time uh, just uh, with your spouse uh, talking through some of these things. And so the first sessions are being held on November 6th or November 13th. So both Saturdays. So if one of those doesn't work for you, you can sign up for the other one. Uh, and you can sign up to be part of either one of those uh, at the Grace Marriage table. Pastor Jerry will be there after the, and Kim will be there after the service and, uh, and in the Connection Center. And it gets you signed up for that. The cost to participate is $200 per couple per year. And so that covers a full year, all the materials you need for those four sessions, uh, as well as it covers your food and different things, uh, incidental expenses, as well as um, covering uh, you get a subscription to this Grace at Home. Uh, kind of content that you can use throughout the year. It's not just during those four uh, years and uh, four times that you meet. And I just want to say if cost is an issue, I understand that can be a little bit steep. And so don't let cost be prohibitive. That is, I cannot say that. I struggled with this word in first service too. Prohibitive. Don't let it stop you from doing it is what I'm trying to say. That's maybe a better way. So don't let the cost stop you. We have money set aside for scholarships as well as actually somebody uh, approached Pastor Jerry and anonymously donated for a certain couples, uh, a certain number of couples to um, be a part of it as well. So don't let the cost stop you. Uh, we want everyone who wants to and is able to be a part of this to participate in this. I think it's so important. I'm so excited. Emily and I are signed up uh, to be a part of one of these, and uh, we, uh, we can't wait for it. So really, really important, again, for those of you, if you're married, because uh, your marriage is, uh, is worth it. Amen? All right, well, let's pray, and then we are going to jump into the book of James together. Heavenly Father, God, you're good. 
thank you that we can gather to worship the worthy one, the one who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, the one who is like a lamb without blemish or spot, that his blood covers multitude of our sins. All of our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. Praise you, God. God, I just pray that that truth would just sink into our hearts today, this morning, right now, as our minds can be distracted with any number of things. Just draw us right to you. We need you, God. We need you to fill us. God, we are so often just filling ourselves with lesser things and expecting those things to satisfy us the way that you are only able to satisfy us. And we're always found wanting. We're always found short when we do that, God. So may we not rely on lesser things to fulfill us and satisfy us, but may we only be satisfied in coming before your throne. God, we thank you for your word how we know who you are and how we're called to live. And we thank you. We praise you for it. Your word that from Genesis to Revelation tells us the story of redemption through Jesus. It's on every page. We praise you for that. God, help us now as we embark on this new book, studying the book of James. God, that you would use it to mold us and shape us and change us into who you were calling us to be. You're worthy, God pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, whenever we uh, start studying a new book together, there's uh, a few things that we need to talk about in order to get a better understanding of where we're heading. So, we cannot, I mean, we could just start saying verse 1 and, and just go from there, but I think it's always important to kind of take a step back and learn a little bit about the book as a whole so that we can get a better understanding of where we're going when we study it. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to talk about who uh, wrote the book and why it was written. That'll be the first part of what we do, and then we'll jump into the book as a whole. So a trivia question. You're going to be really, need to be really brave to answer this question. Who wrote the book of James? What's his name? Bill. Who said Bill? That was not the right answer. Sorry. <laughs> James, good job. Some of you got that. Very good. James wrote the book of James. A few things to know about the James who wrote the book of James. James actually grew up in a Christian household. And the reason we know that is because he was Jesus' brother. So there's uh, not much better Christian household to grow up in than when Jesus is your brother. But actually, John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus' brothers did not grow up believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And the first time you, th- you think about that, you think, that's crazy. They were living in the same house with him. Like, how could they not believe? But then the second time you think about that, you think, of course they didn't believe that their brother was the Messiah. Like, how many of you have siblings? Raise your hand, most of you. What would it take for you to believe that your brother or sister was the savior of the world? Probably more than just them telling you, right? I was always trying to tell my brother why I was in the right and he was in the wrong. And he never believed me, believe it or not. What would it take? Well, okay, maybe if you die and then you raise from the dead and then I see you and talk to you and touch you, maybe. (laughs) Well, that's exactly what happened with James. 
Jesus died, was resurrected, and then 1 Corinthians tells us that James was one of the people that Jesus appeared to, and he went from a non-believer to a leader, a key leader in the church. He was one of the pastors at the Jerusalem church. And so what's cool about James, the book of James, is that we see that influence of growing up with Jesus, of being very familiar with the teaching of Jesus, that influence is wrapped up in almost every verse in the book of James. Almost every part of James you can point back to and say this comes directly from this teaching of Jesus. And so we're going to, as we study the book of James, we're actually going to be going back and forth and seeing the teachings of Jesus through the lens of the letter of James. And so it helps us to know who wrote it because we know his background and why he wrote it. And so it also, not only do we need to know who wrote the book, but we need to know the purpose of the particular book. Why was this book written? And to answer that, we actually have to note that there was, there is some controversy with the book of James. Some people have argued over the years that James should not be included in the New Testament. Now, uh, I say that to say that there's, you're not going to find a single book of the Bible that somebody's not going to argue shouldn't have been included in the Bible, but in the New Testament. What I'm talking about is the fact that actually there were some, uh, not just heretics, that argued against the book of James. In fact, the most famous person who did not think that James should be included in the New Testament was none other than the reformer Martin Luther. Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. Martin Luther, the guy of, uh, who nailed the 95 theses on the door of the Catholic Church and the father of pro, uh, the Reformation and Protestantism and the reason that we're here today, basically. Martin Luther did not think he hated the book of James. He had nothing good to say about it. And it's, and it's interesting. There are a couple reasons why. There's the first reason... Is, has to do with the fact that Jesus actually is not mentioned very often, believe it or not, in the book of James. I think that's a little interesting because if I'm the half-brother of Jesus, I'm writing a letter to people about like how to follow Jesus, you better believe I'd be dropping that name like every two sentences, right? I'd be like, as Jesus' brother, I want to tell you, and by the way, remember that I'm Jesus' brother as I'm telling you these things, right? I'd be name dropping that all the time. My biggest celebrity encounter is uh, Al from Home Improvement, and uh, I'm like constantly telling people that story, so uh, half of you don't even know who Al from Home, that show is so old. Raise your hand if you have no idea who I'm talking about when you say this whole front row up here. And a couple in the back, there we go. Anyways... So if I'm Jesus' brother, I'd be name dropping all the time, but James doesn't do that. In fact, even in the title, in the introduction, in the first uh, verse, he doesn't even call himself Jesus' brother. Look at what it says, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. I think that's amazing. I think that really shows us just how far James's heart has changed in this. Growing up with Jesus, not believing that Jesus was the Son of God, and now to be able to say, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. But that's one, what we just saw right there in verse 1, that's one of only two times that Jesus is mentioned in the letter. And if you compare that to a lot of the other writings in the New Testament and talking about the writings of Paul and, and Peter and, he, and the author of Hebrews, like Jesus is mentioned constantly and they talk about the resurrection all the time. And so some people have argued because Jesus is not mentioned very often that this book is not gospel-centered enough to be included in 
the New Testament. The second reason that our people would argue that this book shouldn't have been included is because on its face, it appears to actually not only kind of not jive with some of the writings of the New Testament, but actually directly contradict some of the other writings of the New Testament, particularly when it comes to this idea of faith and works. Faith and works, meaning faith, meaning what you believe, and works, meaning what you do. And the New Testament has a lot to say about how you're saved, right? And Paul famously says, it's by grace you've been saved through what? Faith. He says, it's not from your works. So Paul says, it's by grace that you've been saved. You have been saved only because of your faith in Jesus. It has nothing to do with anything you've done. And we say this all the time at Rock Prairie, don't we? It has nothing to do with anything you've done, and it only has to do with what he has done on your behalf. By grace, you've been saved through faith. But here James comes along, and James says, faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. Meaning you can believe whatever you want, But if you don't have works to back it up, that faith is meaningless. And so people have argued that seems to contradict. Paul says it has nothing to do with your works. James says if you don't have works, you don't have anything. So which is it? How do we resolve that controversy? Well, I can't answer that right now. I can't answer everything in the first week of James. Got to keep coming back so that we can learn what, how do we resolve that. And we will talk about that quite a bit as we study the book of James. But the point of all of this is that these criticisms of James, saying it shouldn't be included in the New Testament, they actually miss the point of why the letter was written in the first place. They're, trying, they're expecting something out of the letter that was never intended to be there in the first place. Now, I, to, to kind of make this a little more clear, I wonder, how many of you have ever, you buy, you buy something that like, needs to be put together, or a tool, or some toy for your kids, or a, a piece of furniture, whatever. Like It's not ready to go right out of the box just yet. So you pull all the pieces out, and then you pull the instruction manual out. It's like this thick. It's in like five languages, and you can't even find the English part. And then when you do, it just seems like a bunch of lawyer jargon, and it's like all this stuff. And um, you're like, oh boy, this is going to really be a nightmare to, to get this thing working. And then, but you, as you're pulling everything out, you see you know, on the, like right in the box, there's a little brochure, and you pull it out, and it says the three words that you've been looking to hear, which are quick start guide. (laughs) Oh, thank goodness. What's that quick start guide for? How do you get this thing going as quickly as possible? Right? You don't need to know everything. It's it's kind of understanding. You're not trying to figure out every single thing about whatever this product is. It's just you want to use it quickly, and this is how you do it. And it's not a perfect analogy, but in many ways, that's what James is in this letter to these believers. You saw, we said in verse 1, that it was written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's writing to a Jewish audience who are facing persecution at the time of writing, and they've been scattered uh, out because they're being persecuted for their faith. And they just want to know, what are we supposed to do? (laughs) What do we do now? How do I follow Jesus like in this moment of my life right now? When the world, my world has turned upside down, what am I supposed to do to follow Jesus? And how do I remain steadfast in my faith? This book is super practical. And that's exactly why we need it today. I've had conversations with many people inside and outside of our church who are saying how difficult and confusing 
and dark these days seem to be right now, right? Where up seems down and left seems right and we don't know what to do or how to navigate the world that we're living in. And that's why I'm so excited about this book. We need the practicality of it, just the nuts and boltsness of this book. Say, this is how we're called to live the Christian life. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? You want to know how to do it? This is how. That's why for many people, it's James is their favorite book. I talk to some of you, say, James is my favorite book of the Bible. It's just so practical. It's so real. It's so earthy. It deals with the same very things that we deal with, the same issues that we have in our hearts. It speaks right to them, and it tells us exactly how we're called to live. And so that's why I'm really excited to study the book of James together. And so James just gets right to the point, right? He has one verse of introduction. This, I'm James, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, who, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That's his introduction. And then verse 2, he gets right to the point. And what he talks about, and we're, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning, is how do we respond as Christians to trials in our lives? This was the first thing that James felt like his hearers needed to hear, is how do we respond to trials in our lives, and this is what we're going to look at. So look with me at verse 2. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Is the uh, PowerPoint working? There we go. Perfect. Thanks, Craig. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So in this, first of all, I think we need to note that it doesn't say, Count it all joy if you meet trials of various kinds. What's it say? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Meaning, you will face trials in this life. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Raise your hand if you're still waiting for your first trial to go through. Like, you're just like, man, I, I've heard about these trials, but I've never gone through one myself. Yeah, that's nobody. Maybe Lila Louise is still waiting for her but probably not. We're going to face trials in this life. So what do we do in the face of those trials? What do we like? That's reality. How do we respond? And that's what James is instructing us here. And he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And we need to recognize he's not just talking about the little things here. Like it's easy to see how this applies to the little things in life. The little trials, we're supposed to count them all joy, right? Like, oh, I was uh, going to Starbucks the other day and the drive through line was just way longer than I was expecting. But I just decided to turn up Caleb and I counted it all joy, right? Like, yeah, okay, that's that's fine, that's what, you know, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the real stuff, the hard stuff. And the reason we know that is the next verse. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith. He's not just talking about inconveniences of life here. Your Starbucks line isn't testing your faith, at least I hope it's not. Testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He's talking about these times in life where we walk through trials so difficult that your very faith is being tested. Church, I just think this is so timely for us right now. Many of you are walking through those trials, those kinds of trials, like right this very moment. 
days of just, I don't even know how I'm going to get out of bed because I don't know how I'm going to possibly face whatever's going to come my way today. Others of you, maybe you're just coming out of a season like that, a season where you didn't know how you were going to muster up the strength to get through. Others of you, not to be morbid here, but others of you might be about to just right now walk into one of those seasons. You don't even know it. We need to be prepared. So what does James say we're supposed to do when life feels so heavy and difficult and dark that you don't know if your faith is going to survive? What's he say? Count it all joy. How do we do that? Honestly, how do we do that? Like that doesn't seem possible sometimes. In fact, if we're really honest, that can even, this verse can even feel like a burden sometimes because you think not only am I going through this awful trial, but now I'm supposed to count it all joy and I know I'm not. You feel worse about that. What do we do? How do we truly count it all joy? Got to be honest, I'm really bad at this. I struggle to find joy when I'm walking through various trials. I can really have an Eeyore attitude about it sometimes. Woe is me. It's not something that comes naturally to me, and I really don't know if it comes naturally to many of us. But that's why James says, count it all joy. And there's a couple things, if we want to know what it means, we need to realize there's a couple things that this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the moment you hear bad news, you just start jumping for joy. Yes! Thank goodness. I was worried my life was getting just a little too easy. I was worried I hadn't faced a trial in a while. Yes, it finally came. That's not what we're talking about here. It also doesn't mean, though, that you, like, feel happy because you know it's going to get better soon. Because you know what? It might not. We don't know that. That's not what this means. Thirdly, it's not putting on a happy face and just pretending that it's okay. I think this is a real temptation for us as Christians a lot of times. Just feel like we need to put on the happy face and pretend that things are okay. Things are not always okay. I think sometimes when people go through trials, sometimes they don't even want to be around their church family because they don't feel like they have enough strength to like just muster up that just like fake smile. They can't fake it well enough to be with their church family because they know, well, I'm, sp- I'm not supposed to be feeling bad. That's what they think. Let me just say, church, if we're a group of people who gather together to fake it every week, we're not being the church, are we? It's not what we're called to do. Joy in trials has nothing to do with pretending like the trial doesn't hurt. Sometimes I think maybe we don't know what to say to people when they're walking through trials. It's okay, just, you know, you find joy in it. Joy in trials has nothing to do with pretending like it doesn't hurt. It has everything to do with the God who is bigger than even the greatest trials that we can imagine. In one of my commentaries this week, I was reading about a pastor named John Lloyd Ogilvie who walked through just an extraordinary season of trial in his ministry, in his family, with sickness and, and death, and just, just seemed like one avalanche after another. And this is what he said, reflecting on it. 
He said, the greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all the difficulties is that I can have joy when I can't feel like it. When I had every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. Why? In spite of everything that he was going through, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing could separate me from him. It was not a happiness or a jolliness, but a constant flow of the Spirit through me. Listen to this. At no time did God give me the easy confidence that everything would work out just as I wanted it to, but that he was in charge and he would give me and my family enough courage for each day. Grace and joy is the result of that. Read that again. At no time did God give me the confidence that everything would work out just as I wanted it to, but that he was in charge and he would give me and my family enough courage for each day. And joy is a result of that. God doesn't promise that the trials won't hurt. He doesn't promise that you're going to know exactly what to do when you wake up tomorrow. He doesn't promise that if you just read the right verse or pray the right way, all your problems are going to be solved, right? Sometimes we feel that way. If I, just need to, I just need to read this, right, this passage or I just need to pray the right thing and I'm just going to feel better. It doesn't always work like that. God doesn't promise those things, but he does promise things that are even better than that. He promises his very presence. He promises himself. Really, what's better, church? What do I want more? Man, this is a good question. <laughs> what do I want more in my heart? That my life is working out just like I want it to or that God is with me? Deep down, <laughs> sometimes I just want my life to work out just like I want it to. That's not better. It's better to have the very presence of God promise to us with you every moment every second that moment you think i cannot open my eyes because i can't face this day god is with you right then praise god for that he promises his presence he promises his grace and he promises his joy i love that there's one more thing that he promises we see in this verse. He promises that your trials aren't wasted. Your trials aren't wasted. I love this. When the Lord is allowing you to go through trial, there is something that is being produced in you that would not be produced if it were not for that trial. And that thing that's being produced is steadfastness. It's steadfastness. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That happens. When your faith is tested, it produces steadfastness in you. And steadfastness is not the end goal in itself. Let steadfastness, verse 4, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is an ongoing thing that the Lord does in our hearts couple other translations that I like. The Christian Standard Bible says the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
the NIV, some of you have the NIV, says the testing of your faith produces perseverance, endurance, steadfastness, the ability and capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. It's a strengthening. Now you can see just by looking at me, I am a big time weightlifter. I'm just, you can't get me out of the gym, right? I'm just constantly just, just uh, doing reps. I don't even know how to. <laughs> okay, so I'm not. Some of you are. Some of you could snap me like a twig. And uh, it's that idea that what, when you're strengthening yourself, what do you do? Your muscles are being broken down in order to be built up, to continue, to be strengthened, to be able to endure when a greater weight comes on in the future. All right, so I'm not a, a weightlifter, obviously, but I can relate to this a little bit because I'm running right now. And uh, Emily always gets really embarrassed when I tell people that she's a really good runner because she always says I'm not a really good runner, but she is a really good runner. And uh, she, uh, when we, our first date, or like right before our first date, she told me that she was running the Indianapolis Mini Marathon. And before that time, I didn't even know that 13 miles was something that a person could do in, in one run. Like I didn't even know that that was possible. I did not grow up in a family of runners at all. And uh, so anyways, but... Um, She's always amazed me, and she's a really incredible runner. But when you get married, you and your spouse tend to rub off on one another. And somehow in, in 2020, I found myself signed up for the Indianapolis Mini Marathon. And uh, so I was just praying and praying and praying for a way out of this thing. And, and praise the Lord, coronavirus hit and canceled the whole race. So I uh, might be partly my fault. I don't know, but... Anyways, as soon as the race was canceled, I pretty much just stopped running, and then I had COVID for four months and wasn't running at all during that time, and then by the time we got back from vacation this June, I uh, stepped on the scale and realized that some changes needed to take place in Pastor Mike's life. Uh, things were not looking so good for me, and so I started running again, and uh, been running for a while, and so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this thing, I might as well just sign up for it and get it over with. So we signed up in November. We're doing the half marathon. And I guess I'm just telling all of you for like, uh, now I have to do it. Although probably next week I'm going to blow out an ACL or something and not be able to do it. But anyways, they were getting somewhere with this. All that to say, like the, the first few weeks of running after I accidentally forgot to work out for a full year, <laughs> that hurt. That was not fun. I was sore. I could barely run a half mile before I had to stop and walk. But I've endured. I persevered. And I'm still going. And now uh, we're, we're doing this training. And I just ran seven miles yesterday, which I never thought uh, was something that I'd be able to do. And the, the thing about this is I was running yesterday and it's got to the six and a half mile marks. Like, I don't know how I'm going to double this like in a month or two. And uh I can't do that, but that's not for me to worry about right now. I think you can see where this is going, is that it takes this like painful process to build up your endurance, and it happens slowly and painfully. And when you're here and the Lord wants you to be here, you can look there and say, I don't see how I'm ever, ever, ever going to get there, certainly not with how I feel right now. It's not possible And those trials produce in us a perseverance, which then makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus wants you to be here. None of y'all are here yet. Some of you are close. 
Those trials that the Lord has us go through are the things that sometimes feel like we're breaking down, but it's building in us an endurance and a strength and a perseverance, and there's no other way to form it. And it hurts. It's not fun. You don't enjoy it when it's happening. But I love the way that this verse is worded because it says, count it all joy or consider it pure joy, meaning think about it that way. Like this is you telling your mind, how do I think about these things? Because you don't want to think about them that way. You can't on your own. So we're reminded that God is not wasting our trials. He's building something in us that could not be built up on our own. God doesn't take pleasure in just like the needless suffering of his children. Maybe it feels like that sometimes. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible, Lamentations, that talks about how it can feel when we're suffering and it can feel like God has abandoned us. So again, this is not, we're not talking surface level here, just, just consider it joy. This is real. Lamentations chapter 3 talks about the fact that, God, you are like, you're just swatting away my prayers. And it feels like you're a bear in hiding, just wait to de- waiting to devour me. Sometimes we go through such a trial that it even feels like God himself hates us. And yet, the end of that chapter... The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. Your trial is not being wasted because God is using it to perfect you and to shape you into who he's creating you to be in Christ. So I just want to encourage you this morning, whether you're like, you've, already, you've just walked through a trial or you're walking through it right now, Like right this very moment, this very day, it is not being wasted. I promise you. You can't always see it. You can't always feel it. You feel like, I'm not going to make it to the finish line, God. He's with you. He's with you. He's using it to strengthen you and to equip you. And so we just need to ask the question, how much do I trust the Lord? How much do I trust him? I think if I asked every single one of you, tell me about a trial in your life that God has used to mold you and shape you into the person you are today, every one of you would have an amazing story of what he's done in the past. So just remind you, if he's done that in the past, he's doing it today. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Again, it feels like I'm repeating myself here. Maybe it feels like, well, God helped me in the past, but now he's not with me. I promise you he is. He's using this to help you be strengthened and persevere. You trust that same God who carried you before to carry you today. And if the answer is yes, that is where it starts. That is how you have joy in trials. I don't know how this circumstance is going to get better. I don't know how I'm ever going to feel better than I do right now. But God's carrying me and he's not wasting it. trust you, God. I don't see way out of it, but I trust that you are the same God yesterday and today and forever, and that you're not wasting my trial because you're using it to give me endurance, to make me steadfast, and to make me complete. Praise God that he is not a God who wastes our trials, but uses them for our good and for his glory. We've been through some trials, 
the last few years as a church. Personally, many of you have walked through really hard times. We all have. But God has been faithful. Amen? Amen. Because God is faithful, let's do what it says in 1 Peter. Let's not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes as though something strange is happening to us. But let's continue to entrust ourselves to a faithful God and continue to do good. And count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is what God wants for you, to be perfect and complete and lack in nothing. And he is the one who will take you there. It's not your job to get there on your own. He will carry you through the trial. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you that you see our hurts and our pain. You see our tears. None of it escapes you, God. God, we thank you for the trials that you give us. Thank you that you use them to make us steadfast. As hard as it is to go through, Lord, our faith would not be the same if it were not for those trials. Testing our faith. Giving us endurance. Giving us perseverance. So God, help us to be a steadfast people, a people who will not be moved, not because of our strength, but because we are hidden in Christ. Help us to wake up every day and to put on Christ like we put on our clothes. Help us to stand firm. Draw near, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling and suffering in trial right now, God. Just draw yourself near to them. Give them a joy. This is a joy, ultimately, that we can't explain. And just say it comes from you. And it's because we have a greater hope. Our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is in the King of kings and the Lord of lords, coming back and making all things new and all things perfect. And there will be no more sickness and no more death and no more pain and no more sin and no more sorrow and no more tears. You're going to make everything perfect again. Come quickly, Jesus, and make it all right again. You don't know why you haven't come back yet, but you do. So in the time that we have, however long that may be, build us up into the people you're calling us to be, God. Strengthen us. And we'd be steadfast in our faith of our great Savior. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.